For the word of God that is written, for the word of God that is within us, and the word of God that is round about us, we give thanks to God. When I, when I was in high school, I wanted very much to be cool. And, and I'd say that's a typical desire of teenagers, except that I'm pretty sure it's a, it's a typical desire for everyone. And it is a longing, that longing to be cool is a longing that few of us ever really fulfill. Even if we are cool, we probably don't think we're cool. And so there's sort of a lingering longing that infuses a lot of human societies. Now, my own particular desire for coolness when I was in high school, my desire for coolness was frustrated by the fact that even then, I was kind of Jesus-y. I was an outspoken Christian. I knew that pastoral ministry would be my life's work. And I lived in Mendocino. (laughs) Somewhere along the way, I, I got the idea that in order to be a good Christian, and being a good Christian, that was the kind of Christian I really wanted to be. In order to be a good Christian, I had to make sure that I only ever listened to Christian rock music. And so my, my Sony Walkman knockoff played host to a collection of cassettes by artists like Keith Green and Petra and Amy Grant and Phil Kage and the 77s and Michael W. Smith and Steve Taylor and the second chapter of Acts. These are bands known primarily to the terminally awkward evangelical adolescents of the 1980s. If you weren't there... You probably haven't heard of any of those artists except maybe Amy Grant. Have any of you heard of any of those artists? Some of you have. Oh, my God. You were there, too. Maybe like me, you lived in perpetual fear that someone might ask to hear what tunes were transmitted through the foam rubber earphones of your faux Walkman. Now, eventually, it was actually my my junior year in high school, I was living abroad, and there was no access to Christian music. So I discovered groups like Cyndi Lauper and Duran Duran, and I stopped listening to Christian music all the time. But I, I, I was plagued with the idea that I was still supposed to be listening to Christian music. And that lasted until my freshman year in college. I had a class, sort of a music appreciation class, a survey of American music, And someone asked the professor what he thought of contemporary Christian music, Christian pop music. And he sort of stopped and had a pained look on his face and he pulled on his beard for a little bit. And he said, just because it's Christian, is that an excuse for it to be bad? (laughs) Anyway, but three years before that, three years before that, in 1983... In 1983, when I was still struggling with the tension between my desire to be cool and my desire to be a good Christian, something like a miracle happened. My brother Morgan, who if anything was even more dedicated to Christian music than I was, he went up to Fort Bragg and he picked up a cassette by the newly popular post-punk band from Dublin called U2. In the years since then, U2 has become one of the most popular bands on the planet, but But back then, they were a young, gritty, politically radical, and unapologetically Christian band. 
My brother purchased a live album called Live Under a Blood Red Sky, and my mom wouldn't let us play the cassette in our VW van. Suddenly, we were so cool, our mom wouldn't listen to our music. <laughs> Glory, hallelujah, that almost never happened to us. Anyway, the last song on that album was called 40, as in Psalm 40. And it was a setting of this morning's psalm, and for me it was manna from heaven. Here was Bono, the impossibly cool frontman for you two, singing a psalm, and as the track comes to, a, comes to an end, he has a whole live audience somewhere, maybe Germany or Colorado, I don't know, somewhere singing the words of the psalmist King David, or so I thought. I will sing a new song. And when I heard it, I felt as if it just might be possible for me someday to be pulled up from the miry bog of geekdom and have my feet set on a rock of social acceptability. That was among my fondest hopes and my deepest longings. Of course, I just went right on being a dork. And eventually, I looked back on my desire for coolness with a little bit of regret. But still, the memory of that desire is powerful, waiting patiently for God to rescue me from a miry pit. And now, when I read the 40th Psalm, I find myself asking, what do I want now? What would make me cry out to God and wait patiently in a muddy bog for deliverance? Do my deepest longings involve the well-being of my family or do they involve financial stability or personal success do i long for people who i don't like to fail do i want desperately for everyone in the world to embrace my opinions do i want personal power do i long for economic justice and peace good or bad what are my longings what am i waiting for this psalm has become for me a tool of values clarification. And I'd like to offer it to you for use in the same way. The psalmist's cry goes out to God. God comes to rescue, pulls the psalmist out of the pit, and God provides stability and joy. What we don't know is why the psalmist was in the pit to begin with. We don't know what motivated that cry for help. I'm pretty sure it could have been anything. I suspect when we're honest, each of us has a pit we could fall into, a place where we get stuck and cannot help but cry out with our deepest longings. And so my question for you this morning is, what is your miry bog of desire? And I think this is a good question for us to ask on the weekend that our nation is set aside to honor the memory of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Dr. King was a part of a movement that in many ways asks the same kinds of questions raised in the 40th Psalm. What do we want? What are we waiting for? Why are we crying out to God for help? Do we want to live in a world where justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream? Because we don't necessarily live in that world right now. Do we want to live in a world where every child has a reasonable chance to get a good education and later a good job? Because we don't live in that world right now. 
Do we want to, to live in a world no longer marked by systematic incarceration? We don't live in that world either. Do we want to live in a region where an overabundance of empty dwelling places are given over to those who don't have homes? Because that's not where we live. Do we want to live in a nation that would rather live in peace than see its young adults be weighed down by impossible student debt? That's not our nation. Would we like to live in a country where people don't choose between medical care and financial ruin? We don't live there either. Do we want to live in, in, in amongst the people who elect leaders who believe in the science of global climate change and worry about how a warming planet will affect the poor? That's not where we live. All these things I've mentioned, injustice and educational inequality, mass incarceration, economic inequality, homelessness, housing insecurity, student debt, access to medical care, the effects of climate change, all of these are things that will affect the poor and people of color before they affect people like me and people like many of you. And so for me to read Psalm 40 on the weekend of Martin Luther King's birthday celebration, this is to be challenged with difficult questions. What am I waiting for? Do I want to live in a better, more just world? And if I do, do I want it so much that I'm willing to jump down into the miry pit and cry out to God and to wait for God and to sing a new song when that song is given to me? A song of justice and peace and righteousness and hope and joy? What am I waiting for? And how about you? What are you waiting for? Will you cry out to God alongside those who suffer injustice and marginalization? And will you sing a new song? Is such righteousness what you desire? Is it an expression of your fondest longings? Let me acknowledge that for a lot of you, the answer, I know the answer is yes. And it's been yes for, for longer than I've been alive. There are people in this congregation who marched with Dr. King, who have protested every war since Vietnam, who have provided sanctuary and welcome to immigrants and refugees from all over the world, who have been on the forefront of climate change action for decades. And you can attest to the joy of singing new songs. God has not pulled us all the way out of the bog. Injustice and violence and inequality yet exist in this world and in our country and in our city, but you have been down in the mud of the struggle. You have cried out to God and you have sung a new song. And while none of us has yet set foot on the solid ground of justice and goodwill and equality and peace, you have seen the rock from afar and you have sung about it in your new song. And your song inspires me. It gives me hope. And to those of you who have yet to jump into the miry bog of longing for a better world, come on down. The mud sucks, but the company is good. And the singing is glorious. And even the longing for a changed world is sweeter than complacency. Come on down into the clay. Cry out to God in the certainty that God hears us and in the hope that the new song will be placed in our hearts and in time we shall rise up supported by the arms of the God who leads us to solid ground.
We who are human have a wide variety of longings and desires, and may this be ours, that a dream of justice and joy and equality and opportunity and goodwill and a regard for the common good will be born among us. May our new song extol the end of white supremacy and and, and, and economic inequality and homophobia, and may it tell of a world where children learn in the day and sleep secure at night beneath a roof after being fed good food and in the confidence that they will receive medical care when it is needed. They will be welcomed in a world as they grow up no matter who they love or where they're from. May we sing of peace between nations. May we sing of care for all creation. May this be our longing. May God put this new song on our lips. Amen.